Welcome to A New Republic, an oral history of the Indian Constitution. The first time I saw Mahatma Gandhi was sometime in 1920 when he visited Patna in connection with his uh, first non-cooperation movement. I was then a student in the Patna College in second year science. I still recollect how large that meeting was, one of the greatest meetings, biggest meetings uh, that uh, I have seen. And one, partic one fact particularly stands out. Uh, during his speech, before Gandhiji started to speak, uh, he made an appeal to the audience uh, for uh, uh, contributions. And volunteers went around uh, with their caps or with their um, handkerchiefs or any kind of cloth that they had. And the collections were made while Gandhiji was speaking. And after he finished, all the coins that had been donated were brought to the platform and they were all put into a big sheet of cloth and uh, somebody tried to lift the, uh, the <laughs> all the coins. It was so heavy that this man uh, found it difficult to lift it. So much had been collected. After that, I don't think I ever saw him that time. I didn't meet him at all. Uh, it was a few months after this uh, that I myself joined the non-cooperation movement. This was in 1921 in January. That was the voice of the great socialist and political reformer Jay Prakash Narayan speaking about his first encounter with the Mahatma. That is from a recording in the archives of the Center of South Asian Studies at Cambridge University. It's an excellent free online resource. You should check it out. Now, in the next two episodes of The New Republic, we are going to spend a few minutes looking at Gandhi and Gandhi's constitutionalism. Now, regular listeners may note that this is something of a departure from the normal state of affairs with this podcast. So far, we've stuck to a more or less chronological script, with each episode following the one before it in time. In episodes 9 and 10, we're going to deviate from that script. And I suppose if you're going to deviate from a script for anybody, it should be for Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi. Now, so far this podcast has told the story of the Indian constitution right up to the 1920s. At this point, in the 1920s, the First World War is over. The uh, tragic Spanish flu epidemic is behind us. And the Indian nationalist movement is now prepared to bloom like never before. And it is going to bloom under the stewardship of Mahatma Gandhi. Gandhi brought a certain direction, a certain focus, and a certain potency to the Indian nationalist movement. He also brought with him something that no nationalist leader before had ever managed to achieve. Genuine national popularity. Now our history textbooks, especially school textbooks, give us the impression that the leaders who came before Gandhi people like uh, Gopal Krishna Gokhale, Lala Lajpat Rai, and uh, say Dadabai Navroji, were freedom fighters of national impact. However, after the last few months of reading and thinking and researching, 
I'm kind of left with the impression that none of them came even remotely close to Gandhi's national magnetism. In fact, in my opinion, and this will be a controversial view, the closest any Indian got to Gandhi's appeal before him may have been in the form of Bahadur Shah Zafar during the first war of independence in 1857. And that too, only because of what the Mughal emperor represented, a sovereign India, in a manner of speaking, rather than because of who uh, Zafar was. Now, Gandhi's appeal right from the beginning was twofold. He was both a spiritualist and a politician. And perhaps this was the secret behind his uh, popularity in life and his lasting legacy in death. Perhaps the path to the Indian's mind is through his soul, is through his spirit. And perhaps Gandhi was the first popular political leader to understand this really well. Therefore, it is impossible to tell the story of the two decades between the 20s and the 40s leading up to India's independence without bumping into Gandhi constantly. In a period of Indian history that is just crammed with leaders and politicians and visionaries, Gandhi looms tremendously large. So instead of having to refer to Gandhi continuously through the next few episodes, I figured it may make more sense to look at him in some detail in two episodes. So we'll do the heavy lifting first and then we can treat Gandhi's influence with a lighter touch in subsequent installments, thereby, I hope, doing greater justice to the other protagonists. I hope you will find this approach meaningful, if not entirely chronological. So, what did Gandhi think of constitutions? What did Gandhi think of constitutionalism? And what impact did he have on the Indian constitution? I'm going to tell the story in two parts. In this episode, I'll focus on Gandhi's vision for a constitution and largely on how Gandhi based this vision on the bedrock philosophy of nonviolence. In the next episode, I'll talk about a very interesting experiment in Gandhian constitutionalism that took place in the 1940s. Onwards with uh, the first segment. Now, the popular impression is that Gandhi had little impact on the Indian constitution and that modern India is actually all the better for this. Now, this impression, I feel, is part of a much larger narrative of Mahatma Gandhi that dominates popular opinion. And that narrative, I think, goes like this. There are two Mahatma Gandhis. The first Gandhi was the visionary leader, the man who drove the English out with this tremendous bouquet of non-violent philosophies. This is the Mahatma Gandhi we all worship, the Gandhi we remember, we embrace, and we've put up on pedestals all over India. This is the Gandhi that the world admires the Gandhi Indians wear on their sleeves and the Gandhi we get tremendously defensive about. This is the Gandhi that dominates the modern Indian story. Then there is a second Gandhi, the Gandhi after independence. This Gandhi is much less admired than the first one. This Gandhi is seen as a naive, simplistic, unsophisticated idealist who wanted to return India to the villages. This is the Gandhi who, according to many people, longed for the medieval politics and the medieval societies of a certain glorious Indian past. This is the Gandhi that people roll their eyes at. And I think it is this narrative of Gandhi that is given the term Gandhian so many negative connotations. Now, I remember growing up as a child watching uh, Malayalam movies. And in the movies of the 70s and the 80s, the Gandhian was always seen as a positive, if naive, character. He was always the upstanding member of society fighting against injustice. 
But as we moved into the 90s and the 2000s, the character of the Gandhian began began to change. He began to be seen as as an idealistic buffoon, a guy who gets in the way of reform, a guy who gets in the way of change, a guy who refuses to listen to reason. And it is this narrative of Gandhi, this negative narrative of Gandhi, that I think prevents us from understanding his constitutionalism. Now, about the first Gandhi, about the freedom fighter, there is little argument. The second Gandhi, the Gandhi of free India, makes for much more divisive debate. What kind of nation state did he want? What kind of constitution did he see for independent India? What kind of political society did he desire for this country that he had done so much to free and in a sense unite? Now for the purposes of my exploration, my very shallow exploration into Gandhi's constitutionalism, I've depended on three sources. An academic paper, a copy of a book published in 1946, and records pertaining to what is known as the Aund experiment. Now I know if you're thinking to yourself, Man, you've just read three source materials and you call it primary research. How dare you sit in? You are correct. Like I said before, it is a very shallow exploration. So after this podcast, after you've you've listened to it, feel free to go out and explore more. So my first source uh, material was a paper titled The Smallest Army Imaginable, Gandhi's Constitutional Proposal for India and Japan's Peace Constitution. That's quite a mouthful. It was a paper published in 2006 by C. Douglas Lummis, an ex-American soldier who went on to become a scholar of democracy and politics in Japan and in India. And Lummis published a revised version of this paper in 2010 in the Asia-Pacific Journal. It is this revised version that I'm referring to. Now, this paper kicks off with something Gandhi wrote in 1931. In that year, on his way to the roundtable conferences in London, and we'll talk about these conferences in future episodes, a Reuters news correspondent asked Gandhi what his vision was for a free India. Gandhi thought about this and then put his response down in an article for Young India magazine dated 10 September 1931. In this, Gandhi says many things. Um, Many things we've expected of him. Uh, He says a lot of, uh, shall I say, boilerplate Gandhianisms. But the most peculiar thing, perhaps, he writes, is Gandhi's wish that independent India must have, and I quote, the smallest army imaginable. Douglas Lummis uses this statement to build a framework of Gandhi's constitutional beliefs. But what does it mean, the smallest army imaginable? It sounds almost exactly like the kind of Gandhian ideal that modern India would kind of embarrassingly reject. In fact, the first time when I read it, It sounded like the kind of answer a Miss Universe contestant might give in the final round. I would like to see um, world peace, Mother Teresa resurrected, and countries having the smallest armies imaginable. But Lummis says that if you take this along with Gandhi's other collected writings and thoughts, it actually reflects a very sophisticated constitutional idea. Now, I'm not going to repeat everything in Lummis's paper. You should read it for yourself. It's an excellent paper. But I'm going to share my understanding of where Gandhi comes from. Gandhi was questioning the entire idea of modern nationhood, especially an idea that had taken root after the First World War, or in fact, even after the Napoleonic Wars. According to this idea, one of the indispensable features of a modern state was its ability to raise an army and its right to belligerence, by which I mean the sovereign right to commit violence, if a nation wanted to, had become something of a fundamental sovereign right. 
So if you are a group of people in a particular geographic location, if you raised an army and every other country let you keep that army, you could consider yourself a free nation. On the face of it, this makes sense because without an army, how would you secure your borders and protect your people? But the point Lamis makes, and I think by extension Gandhi understood, was that the vast majority of violent deaths in human history had not been committed by a state being belligerent with another state, but had been committed by a state against its own people. In other words, the right to violence was a sovereign right that states often used to suppress their own people. And if you, even if you account for the deaths in the two world wars, they actually pale in significance to the numbers killed by oppressive regimes within their own borders. And, and I'm talking about countries like Russia, um, China, Spain, and so on. And this is where Gandhi's constitutional idea comes in. Gandhi says that non-violence is not just a means to overthrow aggressors. It is not only a tool for oppressed people to overthrow colonial overlords. But, Gandhi says, non-violence can also be the central, most fundamental philosophy for nationhood. Non-violence can be the bedrock on which a nation can build itself. A nation can actually be established on the principle that it will be non-violent not only to the people of another country, but will also be non-violent to the people of its own geographic location. Once again, we have this Gandhian ideal that sounds somewhat dubious. And Lumis admits this. He says that many people have read this and come back with the impression that Gandhi wants something of a sissy, reactive, cowardly state. But is that what he means? How do you build a nation and a constitution around the ideal of non-violence? Or did Gandhi just drop this conceptual bombshell and walk away, leaving other people to figure out its practical implications? I actually don't think so. I actually think that Gandhi had a concrete idea of how non-violence translates into a state or translates into nationhood and translates into the idea of a constitution. And this is where my second source comes in, Narayan Agarwal's book. Published in 1946, Agarwal's Gandhian Constitution for Free India is interesting, extremely readable and remarkably prescient. Mind you, it wasn't written by Gandhi himself. Narayan Agarwal was a disciple of Gandhi who offered to write an outline for a constitution of India based on Gandhian principles. However, it appears to have been published with Gandhi's active involvement and full blessings. In the foreword to the book, Gandhi himself says, and I quote, All therefore am I able to say is that the brochure contains ample evidence of the care bestowed upon it by the author to make it as accurate as he could. There is nothing in it which is jarred on me as inconsistent with what I would like to stand for. The author was good enough to make such alterations as I thought were necessary. And in the end, Gandhi adds, the merit of his attempt consists in the fact that he has done what, for want of time, I have failed to do. Which I think is a roundabout way of saying that Gandhi agrees with most of the book, asked for many changes which he got, but actually doesn't want to deal with all the criticisms or fan mail that the book may provoke. The book, which should take you no more than a weekend to read, is utterly fascinating. It describes how Gandhi's idea of non-violence would translate into a constitution. And his technique for doing this is actually very simple. Decentralization. By creating very few federal institutions of any size at all, Agarwal, and by proxy Gandhi, suggests that a country could almost completely relinquish its sovereign rights to belligerence. Let me explain how this happens. For Gandhi, 
the most fundamental unit of government is the village panchayat this is the fountain head from which the entire nation draws sovereignty it is also a very powerful body it's a body that deals with several agencies of government from law to health and education and in gandhi's structure which essentially gave uh, every group of 1000 people a village panchayat it was structured like this the head of several village panchayats would form a taluk panchayat the head of several taluk panchayats would form district panchayats and several di- several district panchayat heads would form provincial panchayats that were formed along uh, linguistic lines and the head of these linguistic provincial panchayats would eventually form the central all india panchayat and the head of this all india panchayat would be the head of the uh, republic or the head of the state but because the village panchayats in gandhi's model function with almost complete autonomy the farther a layer of government went from the village the weaker it got in other words the central government in delhi had very little power to meddle with the lives of the people in the villages true power true legislative true political power in gandhi's model resided at the grassroots the gandhian system also had other peculiarities so the head of the state which is in this case the head of the all india panchayat was always always himself the head of a village panchayat and because villages could recall their panchayat members if they were unhappy the head of the state had to still take care of his village constituency irrespective of how many national responsibilities he had therefore distance from the voter in this case did not automatically mean distance from quotidian problems and daily issues therefore gandhi's obsession with the villages which is often ridiculed was not as naive as it looks it is not an obsession with past glory instead agarwal says the gandhian system is really trying to avoid a mobocracy which becomes inevitable if you had large parliamentary constituencies and let me read a shockingly prophetic passage on page 31 agarwal writes and i quote In place of democracy remarks Gandhi ji we see mobocracy decent capable and silent men therefore shun the din and dust of such elections and the unscrupulous and thick-skinned candidates carry the day with their handy weapons of bribery and corruption prohibitive expenses entailed in the elections naturally drive democracy into the arms of the capitalists who ultimately rule the roost moreover the present system of elections in vast constituencies tends to grow too mechanical and hence dull the voters do not have any direct knowledge of the candidates who are set up by rigid party organizations or caucuses the elections have hardly any local interest because there is too much centralization of legislation and administration how utterly prophetic my eyes popped out when i read this bit it is so uh, prophetic it it kind of foretells so much that is going to go wrong with indian democracy in the decades after gandhi interestingly today experts all over the indian political spectrum have slowly started using that f word federalism all over again the central government is again being seen as a slow lazy monster that is actually slowing the states down central legislation today on several matters such as education or uh, the right to food actually lag reforms being carried out at the state level the simple fact is that new delhi is seen so often to just get in the way suddenly when you put all this together gandhi doesn't seem all that politically naive but how does a centralized a decentralized structure according to gandhi's model make a nation nonviolent having read lamis agarwal's book and some of gandhi's works i think i think this is the idea 
When you have high decentralization, you have very weak central institutions. This means that power, business, industry, money and economy is diffused all over the country and is not concentrated in certain locations or with certain individuals. Gandhi even suggests that if there are village panchayats that do not want to be part of the All India Panchayat, they should be free to do so. So in his mind, uh, there is not even that much sovereign pressure on unity. What all this does is make invasion almost impossible. What would be the point of taking Delhi for an enemy army if all you manage to do is kill two dozen village panchayat heads who could be replaced in minutes? Therefore, the need to maintain an army of a large size in strategic locations is ruled out. Conversely, such a diffused federation equipped with such a small army is never going to wage wars anyways. You'll have to buy in all the villages' uh, acceptance to go to war. And in any case, the model only accounts for a very small standing army. So basically what Gandhi wanted was a loose federation of villages, each run by a local community that more or less wants to be left alone to get on with life, with a very weak central federal structure that only takes care of a small number of weak federal topics. Which, in many ways, is the exact opposite of the eventual constitution that India adopted, which focuses so much more on a strong central legislative body that has a commanding presence over state uh, governments. But how would such a Gandhian system ever work? How would these villages coordinate? How would their economies work? How quickly would things fall apart? Surely, surely, Gandhi's ideas wouldn't work in the real world. In the next episode, we'll answer these very questions. That is because someone actually implemented Gandhi's ideas. For almost a decade before independence, one princely state in Western India, run by a progressive Maharaja, decided to implement a new state constitution drafted along Gandhian ideals. This audacious project was called the Aund experiment. So what happened in Aund? What happened when Gandhi's models were implemented? Chaos or coordination? Join me next time to find out. Till then, take care. See you then.